0: Hello, book lovers! Thanks for joining us on this episode as we gear up for the Marlborough Book Festival
1: 2024. Experience the magic of words and wonder from the evening of July 25 through to Sunday, July 28. For more details and to stay informed, head over to themarlboroughbookfest.co.nz. For now, please enjoy this session from the 2023 Marlborough Book Festival. Welcome to this first session today of the Marlborough Book Festival, Jumping Sundays. Um, I'm Laura from Cloudy Bay Wines. It's a pleasure for us to be here and supporting the Book Festival um, here in Blenheim. And I'm sure you'll agree that the festival team has done a wonderful job of putting together such a diverse range of sessions, topics um, and stories this weekend, um, that whether you're just here for this session or you're going to attend some more over the weekend, um, and perhaps attended last night's wonderful opening, um, you're certainly in for a treat. Um, but we'd love to introduce um, Robbie Burton. Um, so Robbie will be introducing Nick Bollinger um, and they will be talking today um, on the Jumping Sunday session. Thank you so much. Thank you, Laura. Uh, Tēnā koutou. Uh, in nā mana, e waka, ina iwi o uh, Kaitiaki o KaitiMana te Finma, Tena Koto, Tena Koto, Tena Koto, katoa. Welcome to you all. It's really great to be here and to see such a crowd. Um, so Nick, Nick is a, um, a writer, um, a broadcaster, and a critic. Um, and though he doesn't advertise, this he's actually also a superb musician. Um, I suspect he's best known really for his for his music criticism. Um, via the column he had in the listener for over 20 years and also for his um, <coughs> uh, regular weekly gig on um, RNZ, The Sampler, um, which for me always stood out for its its ele- elegance and erudition, really. And it was no surprise for really me that Nick has moved into writing books, which he's been doing in recent years. Um, he did um, the creative non-fiction program at the IML in Wellington. Um, and he published his excellent memoir Gonville. If you haven't read that, you should. And um, and now, um, last year, yeah, just about a year ago, he published Jumping Sundays, which is the book that we're here to talk about today. So we're going to start with the reading from the prologue because it's a really good way, I think, of setting the scene. Sure. So off you go, Nick.
2: Yeah. Mm. So this is this is how it begins. On a Sunday afternoon in the spring of 1969, thousands of people defied Auckland City bylaws and came to party in Albert Park. A rock band played on the rotunda. Some people held hands, some danced alone. Some sat under trees with guitars, flutes and bongos and made music of their own. They wore caftans, ponchos and leather-fringed jerkins, floppy hats, headbands, beads and flowers. Poetry and political diatribes were delivered from a podium, improvised from an upturned tea chest. There were bikies, balloons, bubbles, sack races, and a lolly scramble, lots of dogs, and a pet possum. Someone brought a canoe and paddled it around the fountain until it capsized. As the afternoon wore on, there were jostics, sticks, sky rockets, and what some will have recognized as the musky smell of marijuana. It wasn't the first gathering of this kind in New Zealand, but it was up to this point easily the biggest. Here, on a seemingly vast scale, people who'd been variously labelled as hippies, freaks, weirdies, radicals, and dropouts, were able to see and celebrate with a great many others who looked and acted a lot like they did. For those watching from the sidelines or looking at newspaper photos in the days that followed, the effect was quite the opposite. The revelers were a strange group whose lives, looks, beliefs and aspirations were evidently not only very different from their own, but also a challenge to post-war New Zealand's social norms. Jumping Sundays, as the weekly Albert Park gatherings became known, had their origins in another park, another Sunday, just a few blocks away on the upper slopes of Queen Street. Myers Park was the only place in Auckland where it was legally permitted to lecture or preach, play musical instruments, dance, or assemble to partake in any of the above. In the late 60s, much of the activity in Myers Park had centred on the war in Vietnam. Protesters waved placards. Speakers decried New Zealand's involvement in the war and its powerful American allies. One group staged a hunger strike in support of an imprisoned protester and stayed in the park for several days. But while opposition to the war was earnest, a distinguishing feature of this new kind of protest was the idea that such causes could and should be fought in a spirit of mischief and fun. Along with politics, there would be songs, dancing, poetry and theatre. For some of the participants, most of whom were in their teens and early 20s, the politics were almost immaterial. Underlying it all was the idea that the world was on the brink of a momentous change and this was a way to be part of it. The Mars Park gatherings have been gaining force through the year. At first, just a handful, then hundreds came, and soon the crowds had outgrown the venue. The players and dancers felt constrained by the park's steep, narrow slopes. And there was the principle of free speech. Shouldn't you be able to speak your mind whenever and wherever you liked? The limits on gatherings were draconian and had to be challenged. So one Sunday, with little planning and no advance publicity, a group of several hundred left Myers Park and set off down the middle of Queen Street. The musicians carried their instruments, which included an iron-framed upright piano. The small number of police on duty in the city that day were taken by surprise. Assuming the marches were headed for the United States Consulate and Customs Street, the site of several previous demonstrations, They hastily arranged a cordon at the bottom of Queen Street, but the marchers never reached it. Instead, they made a right turn in the direction of the much larger Albert Park, just across from the University of Auckland campus. A taxi driver picking up the police on his CB radio heard an agitated official exclaim, but Sergeant, 300 people can't just disappear. Albert Park was liberated. For the rest of that Sunday and every other Sunday that year, the crowds would gather there. There was no conventional advertising, no notices in the paper or jingles on the radio, just word of mouth and a few the printed flyers distributed around the streets. With each weekend, the numbers grew, while police stood by with the onlookers. Among the guardians of law and order, the consensus seemed to be that youth rebellion would be reluctantly tolerated as long as it was confined to Sunday afternoons. <laughs> well, that's not exactly what... Happen, but uh, well, <laughs> nice one. Nick. That's where it begins.
1: Yeah. Um At risk of sounding like a pedant, um, I actually think it would be really interesting to hear your take on what you actually think um, the counterculture was in Aotearoa Like, what were its characteristics? What are actually we talking about here in terms of yeah. um, this this session today?
2: Yeah, it's a very good place to start, and. I chose to open the book with that vignette of the liberation of Albert Park because that did seem to, that event, it wasn't the beginning of the counterculture, um, but it did bring together a lot of strands that had already been loosely um, sort of running through, in currents through New Zealand society, I think. in a nutshell, the counterculture uh, was the baby boomers, I suppose you call them, post-war uh, children coming of age in the 1960s, looking at the world they were stepping into and, uh, and inheriting and uh, taking issue with it, with a lot of it, um, questioning... The things that their parents and their parents' generation uh, took for granted uh, it was at such a different time um, their parents had lived through a war they'd lived through austerity um, I think that, I mean they are sometimes referred to as the silent generation that that pre-war mm. yeah. generation and in a way, silence is sort of what a lot of them wanted. You know, they, they, they didn't want another depression. They didn't want another war. They were quite happy to uh, uh, have a home in the suburbs um, and, you know, and, enjoy some uh, relative prosperity. Mm-hmm. And I think they were also trying to provide for their children and to their surprise, a lot of what they were offering, um, you know, a lot of things that actually seemed like real social improvements such as, uh, you know, university became a far more attainable goal for, you know, a lot of these uh, boomers were the first of their first generation of their families to go to university and things. but. Uh, Yeah, a a lot of the things that their parents stood for were soundly rejected. Things like um, the notion of of going to war. Uh, And throughout the 60s, we had the build-up of the Vietnam War. Um, So there there were other things too. Um, We can sort of enumerate them. and, and In a way, I've sort of devoted a chapter of... Uh, to each of them in the book uh, domestic life the, the idea of the nuclear family that was challenged you had the idea of um, well initially you know, young groups some, sometimes students sometimes dropouts um, male and female living together setting up their own households um, and then within that things would become even more fluid Um, and it it developed into people actually setting up larger communities um, sometimes leaving the cities altogether and going out and and, and even building their own homes um, out in the bush or in tracts of land so these things were uh, these were new ideas or they were certainly I mean some had everything has antecedents and, yeah. and there were yeah. some outliers in, in previous generations yeah. who had done some of these things of course there'd been a, an anti-war movement before the war there had been even the odd commune or com, you know, intentional community that had been yeah. set up but this was something like a mass movement, I suppose. There were, there were and it wasn't a majority even of baby boomers that were involved in this, but it was a significant enough number that society couldn't ignore it. It was yeah. noticed. Yeah. And and Nick, it, it, you you state in the book that like,
1: you know that was well, we will discuss later on. Um, um, you were possibly a little bit old to be right at the heart of Young. Young, young sorry. It's the young. wrong way. Young, sorry. <laughs> He's not 90. Young. He, uh, we um, young, yeah, young. We were all young. We were all young. And um, um, But you obviously um, um, had some sort of fascination with it, which has led you to want to write this book. You write that you, you were really interested. It had a, quite a profound influence on you, as I understand it, and you were really interested to see... Um, what you know? What it was really? And yeah. What shape it was? Yeah. Is that right? So that yes, yeah, absolutely. What you? Yeah, I would yeah. say
2: that above all, writing the book was my way of of understanding this thing that was going on that looked very exciting to me at the time, um, and the ideas were fascinating. But I was a, a skulkit really through that entire period. <laughs> um, and I could see that there were people just a few years older than me who were doing interesting things. And I was coming up through schools um, that were pretty conservative, you know, um, and it was very clear that there were two New Zealands here, yeah, you know, yeah. there, there was there was a mainstream um, where you were, you know, expected to go through these various steps and... and uh, end up on some sort of career path and then there were people who were challenging that and that looked much more interesting to me um, I mean my own background, um, my parents would, were actually, they were too old to be part of the counterculture really um, but they were If they'd been young enough they would have been right into it, they not? Yeah. yeah and in a way they. I can see that they were kind of in their different ways were helping to kind of forge a path for it, you know at mm-hmm. one point they were, I mean, they, they, they had been, my, my father, um, he was just a bit too young to be um, called up for the military in the Second World War, um, but he'd actually been at, at Wellington College. He'd boycotted cadets. He was already a sort of conscientious objector in principle, I think. So, And he carried on being involved in political movements, and he was quite involved in the anti. Anti-Vietnam War movement um, and the anti-apartheid movement too, and my mother came from a um, she was a refugee, Jewish refugee, but her parents had been involved in the arts in, in in Berlin in the in the pre-war era, so she had that sensibility. So in a way, I was. <laughs> It was a semi countercultural it was certainly um again, I was growing up in an environment that was sort of a bit at odds with mainstream New Zealand and mm. um, yeah, I was sort of right for the picking, really. Yeah, yeah.
1: I mean to me that's one of the really interesting um uh in terms of where this where the counterculture came from. I mean I didn't really get that, but um it 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 seemed that the the role of protest was huge actually and You quote an English writer that it was the bomb that created the counterculture, and um, and you know that seems to be very clear now. Um, The kind of um, the sense that was that young people were incapable of managing a life without a future, and that the whole rise of C and D and all the other sorts of groups uh, that emerged seems to me to be. You know the the sense that we've got to push against the establishment was very strong. Protest runs right through the book, doesn't it? In it terms does. Of, in terms of in all its very various ways. Um, is that you know? Is that a fair? Yeah, I think so. There? And
2: it's I mean I sort of allude to it in the that I read about uh, Myers Park and Albert Park that it was different kinds of protest and. Anything could be a protest. You know, of course, you were protesting against nuclear weapons or Vietnam War or apartheid in South Africa, and these were serious life and death issues. But you were also protesting about the fact that um, men weren't allowed to grow their hair long at school, or you, you know, or even at, at work. You know, people were <laughs> ordered to cut their hair and wear a collar and tie, and uh, all these things were seen as infringements on people's liberties or um, premarital sex, um, or in a country where, uh, which had a an ingrained alcohol culture, uh, you could be put in jail for smoking marijuana. So um, in a way... The whole lifestyle, the countercultural lifestyle, was a protest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Which yeah. was a huge attraction. Wasn't it? Yeah. So and and that, it yeah. was glamorous in a way as, as well. Yeah. 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 Because yeah. it did promise fun. <laughs> you know, this yeah. was a, yeah. a, a, a above all yeah. um, in a society that was fairly, you'd have to say, um, conservative. And I mean, the reason I call it Jumping Sundays, because they had lots of resonances for me. I mean, those gatherings in the park, they did name them Jumping Sundays, but actually the idea that until the late 60s or even later, I mean, Sundays, what do people do in New Zealand? They'd mow their lawns, they'd paint the fence. <laughs> uh, Sundays did not jump, you know, they were... <laughs> they were the shops were closed. Maybe people went to church. I mean, that was something else. Well, the Religion were, is another thing, yeah. actually, that was challenged during the period. And yeah. Uh, yeah. it wasn't entirely rejected, but it was sort of replaced. I mean, you did get this plethora of exotic yeah. belief systems that were suddenly being tried out. Yeah, yeah. And that was another um, kind of rebellion.
1: In the protest vein, why don't you read us a bit about John Bauer? Mm. Um, which is uh you know a fascinating sure. kind of incident really.
2: Yeah, so we're yeah. moving on. This is a couple of years after the liberation of Albert Park and you've had protests taking place you know from the mid 60s all the way through and they started off fairly benign. I think the most um, radical thing that or sort of challenging thing that, that was done in the early in the mid 60s was some students chained themselves to the fence outside parliament grounds. But some people were starting to think that this wasn't enough. And um, this is, I suppose the only thing you need to know here is that there have been a series of visits to New Zealand by American dignitaries, basically courting the the New Zealand government to try and get them to step up their... uh, involvement in Vietnam, their commitment to the Vietnam War. And the latest one to come was uh, Spiro Agnew, who had come with an astronaut. <laughs> He'd brought an astronaut with him. Uh, we'd just had the moon, the moon landing. And it was a particularly hot and sticky Auckland summer. The demonstrations went ahead as planned and were the most violent New Zealand had seen since the country's involvement in Vietnam began. They commenced as soon as the Vice President arrived for his three-day visit on Thursday, the 15th of January, 1971. Things came to a head late on the second night as demonstrators maintained their noisy vigil outside the Hotel Intercontinental. By breaking their slogan of one, two, three, four, we don't want your bloody war into a stereo call and response chant, they were able to sustain a continuous racket. So one lot would go one, two, three, four. Yeah, what bloody they never ran out of breath. But while the 500 or so protesters showed little sign of flagging, a hundred or more cops were getting tired and testy. At around 11.45pm, an observer saw police approach a few in the front of the crowd, as they'd been doing from time to time throughout the evening. Only a handful of the demonstrators would have been able to see the interaction or hear what was said. Almost immediately afterwards, a wall of police charged into the crowd the majority of whom were still seated on the footpath in a tightly packed mass. John Bauer was among that crowd. As he remembers it, the cops got upset and just waded in. Basically, the cops beat us up, just went mad. I don't know who was in command. Obviously, they were getting it in the neck because the noise was carrying on. Demonstrators were forced into nearby Albert Park, yet even after they'd been dispersed, a small number of constables, according to a journalist, perhaps six or seven, pursued them into the trees, still assaulting them. Bauer was among them. He was helping another protester, Janet Neville, escape over a fence when he was set upon, knocked to the ground and beaten. In the days that followed, a committee of concerned citizens was formed to lobby for a public inquiry to establish whether or not the common expectation of freedom from undue or arbitrary violence by the police had been eroded. John Bauer would respond in his own way. In the small hours of the first Sunday in March, Alan Brunton, poet, performer, existentialist, was walking home through Parnell. He'd just come from a party in Remuera Road for his future partner, Sally Rodwell, and he'd given her Let It Bleed, the latest Rolling Stones album. A totally radical record for its time, as he would say. It was physical, it was sexual, it was biological. It had been a great party. And he was feeling high in every sense. I was a totally happy person that night, he said. I felt some sort of achievement about my life. he had just walked through Newmarket down Pound Hill Road, just past the Hearst Chocolate Factory, and was approaching his flat when suddenly up the rise came several speeding police vehicles, lights flashing. They screeched to a halt beside Brunton. He was immediately jumpy, hoping there was nothing in his pockets, a primal fear grams of marijuana could mean six months in prison. Out of dark vans came police with torches and dogs. The dogs are crawling all over me, he recalled. I'm thrashed to the wall, hands up against the wall, top to bottom search. They're yelling and screaming something at me I don't recognise. I had no idea where they came from, what they wanted, what on earth was going on. Then, suddenly as they arrived, they were gone. Arriving home, Brunton's flatmates told him there'd been an explosion that evening at the RNZA base in Fox Street, just a few blocks away. At the scene of the explosion, police had found a note which read, This bombing is one of the initial steps in a plan to render the military establishment incapable of continuing its immoral war in Vietnam. We intend to increase our action against more military bases until the government withdraws its troops from Vietnam, signed Revolutionary Activists. The police contacted the SIS with a view to establishing the identity of the revolutionary activists, but the service was unable to assist. It was five months before John Bauer appeared in court, charged with damaging the Fox Street Air Force Number no. One Port Depot by means of an explosive. He was also charged with a failed attempt to blow up the Army's Number no. Six Magazine at Ardmore, just southeast of the city. In evidence, the detective read the note found under the door of the depot, purportedly bearing Bauer's fingerprints. There would be no-one there at the time of the explosion. The only equipment damaged was a pair of old Singer sewing machines, valued at 10 and $14, held in storage pending transit to Fiji. In sentencing, Justice, be- Justice Beatty told Bauer, "'It is one thing to express dissent by words or proper demonstrations, "'but we will not tolerate violence.' You take no warning. You show resentment towards authority. He sentenced Bow to four years imprisonment. He would serve much of it in the maximum security block at Parramatta. Well, wow.
1: sort of almost quaint, isn't it, <laughs> that someone should you know think a revolution was going to start that way? But so, what were the main threads of the protest movement then? Sort of after. I mean, obviously the Vietnam War was huge, wasn't it? That's what I remember. Yeah. 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 yeah.
2: Um, well, there was the I think the the growing um, feeling about apartheid in yeah. South Africa that which had actually started long before the Vietnam War. I mean, yeah, the, um, yeah that that was in some ways that picked up speed once uh, the Vietnam War had, had sort of ended. Or um, yeah. But okay, the other the other threads of the protest movement, um, the the, the anti nuclear thing was huge, was it? Yeah, and I mean yeah. you mentioned the bomb before, and it, yeah, I mean the, it was a sort of an existential threat mm. that um, it created the whole climate in which I think young people went, this world is act- that that we're inheriting is actually crazy, you know the. This generation that preceded us have created, for the first time ever, have created the means to destroy the entire planet, mm. Mm. and and this is this is a new thing, and it's it doesn't make sense to us, and we mm. reject it. Mm.
3: Mm.
2: And at the same time, I think that that was the sort of uh, whether it was articulated by every one of those counterculturists or or mm. not. I think mm. it. it it was the underlying mood mm. that sort of gave rise to all these other things, and they started looking around and going, mm. we reject that as well. <laughs> you know, yeah. why, why shouldn't we um, have premarital sex? Why shouldn't we take LSD? Um, mm. You know, some yeah, of these yeah. things were worth... You could say some of these things were more um, worth challenging than others, perhaps. I don't yeah, know. yeah. I mean, that's the whole... Other
1: thing that's beautifully um, described in this book is all the kind of cultural stuff, of course. Yeah, that which which is um, a huge feature of the counterculture, wasn't it? You know, it was the sense of otherness that uh, m- me, young people, especially, were able to to generate by what they wore and yes. what they listened to. I mean, music was huge, wasn't it? I, there I was, were things. that... Yeah, yeah, I was really interested in that because too it seemed to me. Um, that I hadn't quite realised that really it, uh, arguably um, the counterculture started, in fact, with j- musically, their interest was with jazz and folk music, really. which I sort of, I don't know, because of my age, I suppose, I just thought it was rock music, but not at all, you know, it was, which, uh, yeah. Yeah. Is that tr- fair? Yeah. I,
2: well, certainly on the campuses, and, I mean, the counterculture had a voice on... on you know the universities were certainly hubs for countercultural activity. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the protests started there, yeah. um, and it also as the as the sixties went on, they beca- and certainly into the seventies, they became really the the kind of main venue for alternative music for the sort of soundtrack of of the counterculture. You weren't going to hear bands playing street fighting man um, or four dead in Ohio in a um in a booze barn you know that that wasn't where that music lived it 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 lived primarily on the on the university campuses and yeah, it's in the early sixties it it was the there was the university jazz club certainly in in Wellington, I think in auckland too there was the university folk club and of course. Folk music, you know, Bob Dylan Joan Baez, were the, they were the sort of figureheads, the protest figureheads of the counterculture. They mm. sang, actually sang songs about these things that people were going out and, yeah. and protesting about. Yeah, yeah.
1: One of the th- um, just switching um, focuses that fascinated me about the book is that just uh, we all, I'm sure, have our own lenses on what the counterculture meant. And For me, if you would ask me about the counterculture, for me it was back to the land yeah it was you know communes and the whole earth catalog and uh, all of that stuff and it's fascinating because that gets relatively little coverage in jumping sundays you know and that was That's one of, yeah one of the oh. things that that i was fascinated by the book because there was all this other stuff that i hadn't really sort of put together yeah. but um it's uh you know and and certainly if i was to think about the naivety of that people think of the counterculture it's well communes is possibly one of the big ones I mean they didn't really, mostly didn't work You
2: know, I until, certainly do yeah. deal with the communes, you, you I, mean, with I had, had to too. condense it yeah. because you could write a whole book about that and yeah, um, and in fact there is a book coming out later this year yeah. um, by a woman called Olive Jones who I I drew on some of her work in, in this as well yeah. she came and spoke at a symposium on counterculture that that I organised in Wellington which was also a great way of sort of um, uh, gathering material. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it had to be really condensed. Yeah. Uh, and I, I certainly didn't cover it in great detail, but um, you couldn't write a book on the counterculture without talking about James K. Baxter and the Jerusalem commune. That was yeah. Um, yeah. That was actually quite an early one. But th- and then the the Ohu scheme, where... Did people know about this? I mean, one thing I was interested in was what, how did the New Zealand counterculture differ from you know, what was happening in America or, or Europe? Uh, what what was our version of it? Because a lot of it was obviously being influenced by things happening overseas. But the Ohu scheme was unheard of. I, this was the government... And this was the short-lived Labour government, 72 to 75, Norman Kirk's government, picking up on the fact that young people were starting communes and were wanting to go back to the land and going, well, we could make some crown land available for them to do this. And there were 40 or 50 of these things actually started. Um, what happened, and I've got a sort of case study of, of one, um, was that these were generally young urbanites with romantic visions of living off the land, um, going sort of up the river and realizing that all they, you know, all they brought with them were some marijuana seedlings and a box of matches. And it wasn't going to be—it <laughs> wasn't going to be enough. Um, and a lot of these places founded, and also the land wasn't very good, and that the scheme was virtually sabotaged from within. Um, Kirk was actually, he completely got it. I mean, there's statements that he made to show that, um, you know, he took—he said these kids, they're anti-materialist. I think this is good. You know, he approved of their values. Um, and so did uh, Mati Rata, who I think saw it as, I think he saw it really as as a Pākehā embrace, a predominantly Pākehā embrace of Māori taia. You know, yeah. went, this is, yeah. yes, this is, this is tribal, and this is yeah. living in harmony with the environment, and this is yeah. to be encouraged. Yeah, it's interesting. The other other thing that fascinated
1: me about the book, which um, again was not something uh, that I had in my head, was that you know this, the subtitle is the rise and fall of the counterculture, um, mm. and your contention really is that by 1975, it was people were already talking about it in the past tense. You know, in terms of the sense that this actually, uh, this this movement it was already petering out, which as a, as a um, as a young man I was just leaving school in nineteen seventy five, my life was completely shaped by the counterculture. It's not how I saw it. I could see other things were not happening, but it's a it's a fascinating, um, made really thought provoking sort of take on it. So, tell us why, why why you think, you know, why you chose to to mm. t- subtitle it like that: the rise and fall the counterculture yeah
2: well um it had to have an end the the book had to have an ending uh i i think by the mid-70s and i think we're about the same age and i was leaving school then too and uh yeah like you very much feeling as if i'm now i'm stepping into this world that's being shaped by this New thinking, you know, and, and it's going to be great. <laughs> um, and it kind of wasn't really. Nineteen seventy-five, a whole lot of things happened. Um, Muldoon was elected, yep. uh, so this brief window where you had Kirk actually embracing some of these countercultural things, like I mean, not only did was there the the Oho scheme, you know, there was also uh, he he cancelled us a South African sports tour. You know, he just said no we're not Motorra. Mm. Yeah, sent the frigate to Morera. He sent the frigate to yeah. yeah. So all these things that the you know had been um radical countercultural movements through the sixties, he it looked like they were actually going to come to fruition. You know, these, these these cries had been heard. Then in came Muldoon, who wasn't going to have any of that. He didn't want communes. You know, dirty hippie dropouts. Um, he was. He actually punched a protester at one. I think they were picketing outside some. I think it was a, a meeting of the. Um, it was a, of landlords, I think. It was like some sort of property thing, and Muldoon was speaking to them, and there were people protesting outside, and he threw a punch. So that was where he was coming from. Um, so it was clear at that point that, you know, the, the counterculture hadn't exactly won the hearts and minds of the whole society. Um, you also had this very destructive... Uh, effect of the the beginnings of this Mister Asia drug ring. Uh, this, um, you know, you'd had this very benign, I think, um, cannabis culture, which had sort of been, you know, actually people were far less likely to have punch ups if they were a bit stoned on grass than if they'd been drinking down at the pub, you know. So. This was all sort of went quite well with the the dancing hippies and the um, saving the planet, but then, it, it, yeah, the heroin had a completely different effect on people. I think it, it isolated people. In some ways, it, you could say it was the most countercultural drug because it actually completely withdrew people from society. But it 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 was also um, it, it had a divisive effect. I talked to people in the protest movement who said um, you know they decided they they had to make a choice between being arrested for drugs or being arrested as a protester and they thought no i i i'm going I'm not going to waste my time being arrested for drugs that's that's going to be uh, that's a silly thing you know it's a frivolous yeah. thing um so, yes, I, I suppose the fall in the end wasn't the end of any of these movements as such, but it was they ceased to be a mass movement. I think what happened was people with particular interests tended to split off from this um this mass movement and sort of plough their own furrow. I mean, one example would be the, the women's movement, which really emerged in the early 70s, you know, women's liberation. Um, and it was a... Up until then, I think... Uh, and I mean, yeah, I think there, there was a sort of realisation that uh, the inequalities that women were experiencing in the society um, could only be addressed by an individual movement. It, it the, The counterculture had actually... Been dominated by male voices, and women weren't going to get sea justice if they just hung in with these hippies who uh, tended to uh, relegate the women to the, the kitchen or washing the nappies or feeding the children while they went up the mountaintops and meditated and made the most taught, of free love. To God yeah. and, and, yeah. and, yeah. and yeah. yes, yeah. yes, and, and established yeah. their, their, their harems. So, yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. but, um. Clearly, uh, you know, that's the influence has carried on. I mean, what what, what was counterculture in 1970? So much of it is ma- mainstream now, isn't it?
2: Yeah. The, oh, the, yeah. And know, at, at, at yeah. around that time where, you know, the mid-70s were, I observed this change, um, a lot of very positive things about the counterculture actually were starting to be accepted by the wider public. I mean, the environmental movement is one of those things mm. that... Mm. that um, even though when the counterculture likes to claim it, they weren't entirely responsible for it. But it, it, what had been seen as a rather fringe belief, I think, I mean, the Manapouri campaign, which was um, really seeped into mainstream New Zealand, suddenly... Mm. uh but that wasn't started by hippies. It wasn't started by hippies, no, but no, the hippies... Embraced it. Embraced it. It, <laughs> it was... Compatible with the sort of back to the land movement, yeah. and it actually was this mainstream thing. Um,
1: what else? And certainly by the 1980s, and when I was personally involved, it was mostly dirty hippies. Most of us were actually, you know, driving it, but got a whole lot of yeah. mainstream support. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um,
2: and just some of those more ephemeral things, but that had actually been a real battle. Um, I think they stopped telling kids they had to cut their hair at school and things by by the late 70s and you know they were even sort of growing moustaches in the police force and things (laughs) like that
1: (laughs) yeah yeah. and caning was you know all that sort of stuff yeah I mean it did really did change isn't it I mean the whole embracement of the um, sort of wellness movement and organic gardening and all the stuff that we uh, yeah it's it's very real now it's very much part of what we are yeah
2: Yeah. I mean I talk about going to an ambassador festival in the very late 70s which, on one hand, it was like um, here is the counterculture all sort of wrapped up, in it, it, but at the same time, you know, it struck me it's a bit like an A&P show or something. You know, it was a kind of um, just come and try these things out. You know, and, and it certainly wasn't. It was it 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 had reached the broader public. You know, it, it, everyone was going along for a look. And, and yeah, it, it, you make the observation that too was
1: was it was a more. Uh away from a sense of collectiveness collective, what's the word, but through to the rise of individualism was sort of Well that finished it
2: off (laughs) Yeah. I mean, in the 80s you got that fourth Labour government um, yeah uh, certainly, you know um, you saw the destruction of trade unions um, yeah, I think you could also see the beginnings of that, even in some of these sort of the, the, the separating of, um, of the strands of the counterculture. It wasn't so much a movement anymore. It was people going, this is my, you know, I'm, I'm going to go on my own self-improvement journey. Mm. Um, mm. Yeah, rather than we're a collective and together we're going to change the side. Yeah, yeah. Yes, sir
1: well we uh, I reckon it's time for some questions um, uh, we've we're mowing through the time, so we've got roving mics, and um, if you've got any questions, um, please uh, wait for one would be great. Has anyone got anything they would like to ask Nick
2: Will we I'll we've look covered this up at all yeah. <laughs>
0: Thanks very much, Nick, for your book. I, I was very impressed in terms of the breadth of subjects you covered and it, trying to synthesise everything and all the research that you did, obviously personal interviews through to looking at, at previous accounts of what happened. Oh, um, thanks. Just going back to Robbie's question about kind of the communes, there was kind of a big movement in Golden Bay, the rural resettlement movement that was spearheaded by Philip Williston in the end who was very articulated and um, articulate in terms of trying to provide changes to planning things that allowed subdivisions so that people could move back into the rural environment um, and he obviously went on to be a mp mp and minister and so on but so there was yeah. people who came out of that movement who who got into the real mainstream society and affected quite a lot of change in that way as well um, <laughs> For the countercultural, John Bauer. (laughs) John Bauer's um, (laughs) legacy, is it? I I just think maybe to finish off the response to Robbie's question, I finished reading your book just after midnight last night. So I just thought maybe you could read a few paragraphs at the end, um, just to to try and gel just what you were touching on before of how it's now kind of been taken over by a lot of elements or got into the mainstream. A lot of elements of what you were talking about. But just before that, I have a quick question. I was intrigued when you said that Woodstock movie missed out. We missed out on about fifteen minutes of music. Oh yeah, and that was very influential in my music taste development, as you touched on in your talk yesterday. Um, but I just wondered, what do we, what did we miss out on? A why was that because of contract rights, or um, was it the language in the songs, or whatever? I think it was actually nudity and
2: <laughs> and. and um, Pot smoking is what I gather. I went through the... Um, in the National Archives, you can look through the the census records and um, you can see exactly, you know, how many metres of film were, were cut out of these things. And there's usually some notes about what was taken out and why. And I think, that, yeah, it was, you know, things that were going to corrupt the minds of young New Zealanders. You know, it would... <laughs> um, I'm sure it's very. It will look very tame now, um, but I think that's what went. I don't think it was. I mean, there would have been probably a musical soundtrack to that, but that was incidental. I don't think it was to do with music copyright. Go on. Um. Uh, Nick, um.
3: Uh, I, I was uh, somebody who was in uh, Jumping Sundays and, uh, and was batten charged by the police outside the intercontinental. you seem a couple of aspects I've, you've mentioned about the counterculture that I think were particularly influential. One was the pill, and secondly was the growing demand by young people to have some say and authority in their life. Yep. And that was influential in the universities. Yes. Uh, there was big movements there and that spread from there. Was
2: yep. that
3: was that p- I haven't read your book, but is ah, that part
2: yep. of your book? No, a- there is a chapter about the pill well, I've, yeah, yeah, there is. No, that's that's I think well addressed there. I think you're absolutely right. Um and what was the other thing
3: that you thought was, was the um the the growing influence of young people who wanted a say in their life and yeah. some influence against the against the uh, the establishment, as it were. There was the the bomb, and Vietnam was yeah. particularly big, but there was also a movement to say, "Hey, we want a say in what's happening in our lives," and that hadn't been allowed up until up until the
2: late sixties. That's uh, yeah, no, you articulate that really well. That, that was a sense. A sort of underlying feeling that I got from pretty much everyone I spoke to and the various different things they were involved in um, whether it was the protest movement or whether it was sexual liberation or drug taking it, in a sense it was saying you haven't given us control over our lives so we're taking it ourselves, we're, we're, we're just going to make the stand and do it anyway whatever your laws are Um which is why it really did appear uh, like a rebellion. It was a, um, it was. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. What's
3: interesting about that boy, to me is that two people who have been influential in different aspects, Winston Peters and Tim Shadbolt, both were <laughs> at Auckland University at the same time at that period. Oh, Winston was there,
2: of course. He was. He, he, was, he must it. have been keeping a very low profile because, in all, I spent a lot of time going through the literature of the, you know, the the, the university magazines and things. And of course, Shadbolt is quoted every other page. <laughs> <laughs> and the name of Winston Peters does not appear. He would have been wearing. He would have been wearing a suit. He? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I
1: think,
2: I think the counterculture sort of bypassed him. <laughs> but it is interesting. It was interesting to me that that fourth. Labor government that came in in the mid-80s was the first time in New Zealand you had a cabinet made up substantially of baby boomers. They, you know, Cagle and Preble and these people were all born after the war and they would have been at university at that same time. They wouldn't have been much older than Shadbolt. And I wonder whether their ideas of um, freeing the economy and this free enterprise thing that they were pushing so strongly wasn't a sort of perverted version of the freedom that (laughs) the counterculture was demanding, (laughs) Um, that there wasn't some odd sort of relationship there. In a way, it was the end of the counterculture and the beginning of individualism, but... um, yeah, it it does, it interests me that they would have been there and, you know, some of them were involved in, in um, certainly involved in anti-war protests and things like that, so... Uh,
1: I don't think they smoked enough pot. Maybe yeah. that was the yeah. problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Kia ora, kia ora i um, I'm just wondering... Um, if you found much evidence in your research of any evidence of the counterculture here in Blenheim um, <laughs> I, I grew up here, local girl was a teenager in the late 60s early 70s, apart from my old school friend Stefan Browning who might be here mm-hmm. yeah. Oh, OK. <laughs> Kia ora, Stefan. Um, yeah, uh, Sundays d- definitely didn't jump at all then. Um, maybe it's different now. Um, I certainly had a feeling that to be part of anything that was happening on a national level, you really felt like you had to get out of Benham and like kind of find a, a campus or some other site where national things were happening.
2: I think that's probably right, actually, that... that um People came from all over the place, but they gravitated to places that were big enough to have this, a bit of critical mass, you know. Um, so it did kind of coalesce in places like Auckland, Wellington. I mean, Christchurch, there was quite a radical kind of political scene. Um, that was one of the centres of this thing, the PYM, which I haven't mentioned, but John Bauer had been a member of that, the, the progressive youth movement. But it was a very fluid thing. It was basically a um, a label that anyone could grab and use. So there was an Auckland PYM who were essentially uh, the junior branch of the Communist Party, but there was the Wellington PYM and the Christchurch PYM, which were more like the kind of Abby Hoffman's yippies. You know, they were... Um, uh, you know, dope smoking, free loving um, anarchists, really. So, but they all called themselves the PYM, and I found it at an interview with a member of the PYM that was done, you know, probably nineteen seventy, around this time um, when they'd just placed a, a wreath on the uh, Anzac Memorial on Anzac Day, um, uh, commemorating, I think, the. Uh, the dead um, North Vietnamese, um, and this member of the PYM was, you know, questioned by uh, a reporter from the Dominion or the Evening Post, and said, uh, "The PYM is a state of mind." <laughs> you know, they've been asked, "Who are you?" You know, take, who are your leaders? You know, further
1: to your your um, question, I mean, the other interesting part though is would the be yeah. rural areas in New Zealand, obviously, Golden Bay, parts of the coast, the Coromandel, Northland, which would attracted, you know, which were in their own way probably became centres. I mean, if you sit in the main street of Takaka um, in January, you'd think it still was the counterculture, yeah. you know.
2: Yeah. So. Um, it's, uh, you know, they still
1: sort of hang in, don't they, in, uh, in
2: yeah. places. Yeah. And there were real tensions when they first, you know, when, when, when these yeah. suburban dropouts first turned up in these rural areas. Terrible. The locals, you know, what's all this? You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, now they've taken over. And yeah.
1: Th- yeah, 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 it's interesting. Mm.
2: So, uh, yes, rise and fall, but actually it's not over, a lot of it. Is actually mainstream things. I mean, and in that final chapter, which I don't think I've got time to read, but I do try and sort of enumerate some of the things that we just take for granted now that that were truly countercultural in the '60s. I mean, even things like yoga classes and yeah, um, yeah, you know, that that was oh, you're a wacko if you were doing that in 1965, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: Or well, long hair—it's so—it's it, so easy to forget, you know. all well, my education was ruined because I wanted long hair, and um, uh, it, but so easy to forget what it was to see someone with long hair in 1968. Like it was like oh, a man, it, sorry. Yeah, it was a
2: yeah. well, this, you know, yeah. the David Crosby song. You know, I'm going to let my freak flag fly. You know, he's going <laughs> to that's the song. Almost cut yeah. my hair, and it's it's true. It, it, it's hard to. It seems so sort of trivial now, but yeah. it was. It was regarded as a matter of life and death. I'm not going to cut my hair, you know, because it was your way of signaling to the straight world and to the countercultural world who you were. You know, it was a banner of your identity. Yeah. Um, It was a way of saying, I reject this, I'm with that. Yeah.
1: Hey, folks, well, we're out of time now. Um, That's been absolutely fascinating. Please give it up for Nick. Yeah. Uh, Thank That's you, great. Robbie, and yeah. yeah
2: thank you all for coming
1: out so early.. <laughs> yeah. And can I please remind you that the yeah, uh, next book is for sale um, out there and'll be available to sign it. so that would be was a wonderful way of supporting this. So thank you very much for coming. It's been a pleasure.